Section 52 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Recipes. Chapter 23. Part 3. Roast Haunch of Venison 1049 Ingredients Venison, coarse flour and water paste, a little flour Mode Choose a haunch with clear, bright and thick fat, and the cleft of the hoof smooth and close. The greater quantity of fat there is, the better quality will the meat be. As many people object to venison when it has too much haut gout, ascertain how long it has been kept by running a sharp skewer into the meat close to the bone. When this is withdrawn, its sweetness can be judged of. With care and attention, it will keep good a fortnight, unless the weather is very mild. Keep it perfectly dry by wiping it with clean cloths till not the least damp remains, and sprinkle over powdered ginger or pepper, as a preventative against the fly. When required for use, wash it in warm water, and dry it well with a cloth. Butter a sheet of white paper, put it over the fat, lay a coarse paste about half inch in thickness over this, and then a sheet or two of strong paper. Tie the hole firmly on to the haunch with twine, and put the joint down to a strong close fire. Baste the venison immediately, to prevent the paper and string from burning, and continue this operation without intermission, the whole of the time it is cooking. About twenty minutes before it is done, carefully remove the paste and paper, dredge the joint with flour, and baste well with butter, until it is nicely frothed, and of a nice pale brown colour. Garnish the knuckle bone with a frill of white paper, and serve with a good, strong, but unflavoured gravy, in a terrine and currant jelly, or melt the jelly with a little port wine, and serve that also in a terrine. As the principal object in roasting venison is to preserve the fat, the above is the best mode of doing so, where expense is not objected to, but in ordinary cases the paste may be dispensed with, and a double paper placed over the roast instead. It will not require so long cooking without the paste. Do not omit to send very hot plates to table as the venison fat so soon freezes. To be thoroughly enjoyed by epicures, it should be eaten on hot water plates. The neck and shoulder may be roasted in the same manner. Time. A large haunch of buck venison, with the paste, four to five hours. Haunch of doe venison, three and a quarter to three and three quarter hours. Allow less time without the paste. Average cost, one shilling, fourpence. 
to one shilling sixpence per pound. Sufficient for eighteen persons. Seasonable. Buck venison in greatest perfection from June to Michaelmas. Doe venison from November to the end of January. The deer. This active tribe of animals principally inhabit wild and woody regions. In their contentions, both with each other and the rest of the brute creation, these animals not only use their horns, but strike very furiously with their four feet. Some of the species are employed as beasts of draught, whilst the flesh of the whole is wholesome, and that of some of the kinds, under the name of venison, is considered very delicious. Persons fond of hunting have invented peculiar terms by which the objects of their pursuit are characterized. Thus the stag is called, the first year, a calf or hind calf, the second a knobber, the third a brock, the fourth a staggered, the fifth a stag, and the sixth a hart. The female is the first year called a calf the second a hearse, and the third a hind. In Britain the stag has become scarcer than it formerly was, but in the highlands of Scotland herds of four or five hundred may still be seen, ranging over the vast mountains of the north, and some of the stags of a great size. In former times the great feudal chieftains used to hunt with all the pomp of eastern sovereigns, assembling some thousands of their clans, who drove the deer into the toils, or to such stations as were occupied by their chiefs. As this sport, however, was occasionally used as a means for collecting their vassals together for the purpose of concocting rebellion, an act was passed prohibitory of such assemblages. In the Waverley of Sir Walter Scott, a deer-hunting scene of this kind is admirably described. Venison. This is the name given to the flesh of some kinds of deer, and is esteemed as very delicious. Different species of deer are found in warm as well as cold climates, and are in several instances invaluable to man. This is especially the case with the Laplander, whose reindeer constitutes a large proportion of his wealth. There, the reindeer unharnessed in freedom can play, and safely o'er Odin's steep precipice stray, whilst the wolf to the forest recesses may fly, and howl to the moon as she glides through the sky. In that country it is the substitute for the horse, the cow, the goat, and the sheep. From its milk is produced cheese, from its skin, clothing, from its tendons, bowstrings and thread, from its horns, glue, from its bones, spoons, and its flesh furnishes food. In England we have the stag, an animal of great beauty, and much admired. He is a native of many parts of Europe, and is supposed to have been originally introduced into this country from France. 
About a century back, he was to be found wild in some of the rough and mountainous parts of Wales, as well as in the forests of Exmoor, in Devonshire, and the woods on the banks of the Tamar. In the Middle Ages, the deer formed food for the not over abstemious monks, as represented by Friar Tuck's larder in the admirable fiction of Ivanhoe and at a later period it was a deer-stealing adventure that drove the ingenious William Shakespeare to London to become a common player and the greatest dramatist that ever lived. Hashed Venison 1050 Ingredients The remains of roast venison, its own or mutton gravy, thickening of butter and flour. Mode Cut the meat from the bones in neat slices, and, if there is sufficient of its own gravy left, put the meat into this, as it is preferable to any other. Should there not be enough, put the bones and trimmings into a stew pan, and about a pint of mutton gravy, let them stew gently for an hour, and strain the gravy. Put a little flour and butter into the stew pan, keep stirring until brown then add the strained gravy and give it a boil up skim and strain again and when a little cool put in the slices of venison place the stew pan by the side of the fire and when on the point of simmering serve do not allow it to boil or the meat will be hard send red currant jelly to table with it time altogether one and a half hour. Seasonable. Buck venison from June to Michaelmas. Doe venison from November to the end of January. Note. A small quantity of Harvey's sauce, ketchup or port wine may be added to enrich the gravy. These ingredients must, however, be used very sparingly or they will overpower the flavour of the venison. The Fallow Deer This is domestic or park deer, and no two animals can make a nearer approach to each other than the stag and it, and yet no two animals keep more distinct, or avoid each other with a more inveterate animosity. They never herd or intermix together, and consequently never give rise to an intermediate race. It is even rare, unless they have been transported thither, to find fellow deer in a country where stags are numerous. He is very easily tamed, and feeds upon many things which the stag refuses. He also browses closer than the stag, and preserves his venison better. The doe produces one fawn, sometimes two, but rarely three. In short, they resemble the stag in all his natural habits, and the greatest difference between them is the duration of their lives. The stag, it is said, lives to the age of thirty-five or forty years, and the fallow deer does not live more than twenty. As they are smaller than the stag, it is probable that their growth is sooner completed. Stewed Venison 
1051. Ingredients. A shoulder of venison, a few slices of mutton fat, two glasses of port wine, pepper and allspice to taste, one and a half pint of weak stock or gravy, half teaspoonful of whole pepper, half teaspoonful of whole allspice. Mode. Hang the venison till tender, take out the bone, flatten the meat with a rolling pin, and place over it a few slices of mutton fat, which have been previously soaked for two or three hours in port wine. Sprinkle these with a little fine allspice and pepper. Roll the meat up, and bind it and tie it securely. Put it into a stew pan with the bone, and the above proportion of weak stock or gravy, whole allspice, black pepper, and port wine. Cover the lid down closely, and simmer, very gently, from three and a half to four hours. When quite tender, take off the tape, and dish the meat, strain the gravy over it, and send it to table with red currant jelly. Unless the joint is very fat, the above is the best mode of cooking it. Time, three and a half to four hours. Average cost, one shilling fourpence to one shilling sixpence per pound. Sufficient for ten or twelve persons. Seasonable, buck venison from June to Michael May, doe venison from November to the end of January. The roebuck. This is the Certocrapolis, or common roe, and is of a reddish-brown colour. It is an inhabitant of Asia, as well as Europe. It has great grace in its movements, and stands about two feet seven inches high, and has a length of about three feet nine. The extent of its horns is from six to eight inches. The Stag the stag or hart is the male of the red deer, and the hind is the female. He is much larger than the fallow deer, and his age is indicated by his horns, which are round instead of being palmated, like those of the fallow deer. During the first year he has no horns, but a horny excrescence, which is short and rough, and covered with a thin, hairy skin. The next year the horns are single and straight, and in the third they have two antlers, three the fourth, four the fifth, and five the sixth year, although this number is not always certain, for sometimes they are more and often less. After the sixth year the antlers do not always increase, and although in number they may amount to six or seven on each side, yet the animal's age is then estimated rather by the size of the antlers and the thickness of the branch which sustains them than by their variety. Large as these horns seem, however, they are shed every year, and their place supplied by new ones. This usually takes place in the spring, when the old horns have fallen off, the new ones do not make their appearance immediately, 
but the bones of the skull all seemed covered with a transparent pyristeum, or skin, which unwraps the bones of all animals. After a short time, however, the skin begins to swell, and to form a sort of tumour. From this, by and by, rising from the head, shoot forth the antlers from each side, and in a short time, in proportion as the animal is in condition, the entire horns are completed. The solidity of the extremities, however, is not perfect until the horns have arrived at their full growth. Old stags usually shed their horns first, which generally happens towards the latter end of February or the beginning of March. Such as are between five and six years old shed them about the middle or the latter end of March, those still younger in the month of April, and the youngest of all not till the middle or latter end of May. These rules, though generally true, are subject to variations, for a severe winter will retard the shedding of the horns. The hind has no horns, and is less fitted for being hunted than the male. She takes the greatest care of her young, and secretes them into the most obscure thickets, lest they become a prey to their numerous enemies. All the rapacious family of the cat kind, with the wolf, the dog, the eagle, and the falcon, are continually endeavouring to find her retreat, whilst the stag himself is the foe of his own offspring. When she has young, therefore, it would seem that the courage of the male is transferred to the female, for she defends them with the most resolute bravery. If pursued by the hunter, she will fly before the hounds for half the day, and then return to her young, whose life she has thus preserved at the hazard of her own. The New Venison the deer population of our splendid English parks was, until a few years since, limited to two species, the fallow and the red. But as the fallow deer itself was an acclimated animal of comparatively recent introduction, it came to be a question why might not the proprietor of any deer park in England have the luxury of at least half a dozen species of deer and antelopes, to adorn the hills, dales, ferny brakes, and rich pastures of his domain. The temperate regions of the whole world might be made to yield specimens of the noble ruminant, valuable either for their individual beauty, or for their availability to gastronomic purposes. During the last four or five years, a few spirited English noblemen have made the experiment of breeding foreign deer in their parks, and have obtained such a decided success, that it may be hoped their example will induce others to follow in a course which will eventually give to England's rural scenery a new element of beauty, and to English tables a fresh viand of the choicest character. A practical solution of this interesting question was made by Viscount Hill, at Hawkstone Park, Salop, in January 1809. On that occasion a magnificent land 
an acclimated scion of the species, whose native home is the South African wilderness, was killed for the table. The noble beast was thus described. He weighed 1,176 pounds, as he dropped, huge as a short horn, but with bone not half the size, active as a deer, stately in all his paces, perfect in form, bright in colour, with a vast dewlap and strong sculptured horn. The land in his lifetime strode majestic on the hillside, where he dwelt with his mates and their progeny. All English-born, like himself, three pairs of the same species of deer were left to roam at large on the picturesque elopes throughout the day, and to return to their home at pleasure. Here, during winter, they are assisted with roots and hay, but in summer they have nothing but the pasture of the park, so that in point of expense they cost no more than cattle of the best description. Travellers and sportsmen say that the male land is unapproached in the quality of his flesh by any ruminant in South Africa, that it grows to an enormous size, and lays on fat with as great facility as a true short horn, while in texture and flavour it is infinitely superior. The lean is remarkably fine, the fat firm and delicate, it was tried in every fashion, braised brisket, roasted ribs, broiled steaks, filet sauté, boiled H-bone, etc., and in all gave evidence of the fact that a new meat of surpassing value had been added to the products of the English park. When we hear such a gratifying account of the land, it is pleasing to record that Lord Hastings has a herd of the Canadian Wapiti, a herd of Indian Nilhoi, and another of the small Indian Hogdeer, that the Earl of Ducey has been successful in breeding the magnificent Persian deer. The land was first acclimated in England by the late Earl of Derby, between the years 1835 to 1851, at his menagerie at Knowsley. On his death in 1851, he bequeathed to the Zoological Society his breed of elands, consisting of two males and three females. Here the animals have been treated with the greatest success, and from the year 1853 to the present time, the females have regularly reproduced without the loss of a single calf. Roast Widgeon 1052. Ingredients. Widgeons, a little flour, butter. Mode. These are trussed in the same manner as wild duck. Number 1022. But must not be kept so long before they are dressed. Put them down to a brisk fire, flour, and baste them continually with butter. And when browned and nicely frothed, Send them to table hot and quickly. Serve with brown gravy or orange gravy, number 488, and a cut lemon. Time, quarter hour. If liked, well done, 20 minutes. 
average cost, one shilling each, but seldom bought, sufficient, two for a dish, seasonable, from October to February. Roast Woodcock, 1,053. Ingredients, Woodcock's Butter, Flour, Toast. Mode, Woodcock's should not be drawn, as the trails are, by epicures, considered a great delicacy. Pluck and wipe them well outside. Truss them with the legs close to the body, and the feet pressing upon the thighs. Skin the neck and head, and bring the beak round under the wing. Place some slices of toast in the dripping pan to catch the trails, allowing a piece of toast for each bird. Roast before a clear fire from 15 to 25 minutes. Keep them well basted, and flour and froth them nicely. When done, dish the pieces of toast with the birds upon them, and pour round a very little gravy. Send some more to table in a tureen. These are most delicious birds when well cooked, but they should not be kept too long when the feathers drop or easily come out, they are fit for table. See coloured plate, I, 1. Time, when liked underdone, 15 to 20 minutes. If liked well done, allow an extra 5 minutes. Average cost, seldom bought. Sufficient, 2 for a dish. Seasonable, from November to February. The Woodcock. This bird, being migratory in its habits, has consequently no settled habitation. It cannot be considered as the property of any one, and is, therefore, not game by law. It breeds in high northern latitudes, and the time of its appearance and disappearance in Sweden coincides exactly with that of its arrival in and return from Great Britain. On the coast of Suffolk, its vernal and autumnal visits have been accurately observed. In the first week of October, it makes its appearance in small numbers, but in November and December, it appears in larger numbers, and always, after sunset, and most gregariously. In the same manner as woodcocks take their leave of us, they quit France, Germany, and Italy making the northern and colder climates their summer rendezvous. They visit Burgundy in the latter part of October, but continue there only a few weeks, the country being hard and unable to supply them with such sustenance as they require. In the winter they are found as far south as Smyrna and Aleppo, and during the same season in Barbary where the Africans name them the ass of the partridge. It has been asserted that they have been seen as far south as Egypt, which is the most remote region to which they can be traced on that side of the eastern world. On the other side they are common in Japan. Those which resort to the countries of Levant are supposed to come from the mountains of Armenia or the deserts of Tartary, or Siberia. The flesh of the woodcock is held in high estimation, 
hence the bird is eagerly sought after by the sportsman. Game Carving Blackcock 1,054 Skillful carving of game undoubtedly adds to the pleasure of the guests at a dinner table, for game seems pre-eminently to be composed of such delicate limbs and tender flesh that an inapt practitioner appears to more disadvantage when mauling these pretty and favourite dishes than larger and more robust piece de resistance. As described at recipe number 1019, this bird is variously served with or without the head on, and although we do not personally object to the appearance of the head as shown in the woodcut, yet it seems to be more in vogue to serve it without. The carving is not difficult, but should be elegantly and deftly done. Slices from the breast, cut in the direction of the dotted line from two to one, should be taken off. The merry thought displaced and the leg and wing removed by running the knife along from three to four, and following the directions given under the head of boiled fowl, number 1000, reserving the thigh, which is considered a great delicacy for the most honoured guests, some of whom may also esteem the brains of this bird. Wild Duck 1055 As game is almost universally served as a dainty, and not as a dish to stand the assaults of an altogether fresh appetite, these dishes are not usually cut up entirely, but only those parts are served of each, which are considered the best flavoured and the primest. A wild fowl, the breast alone, is considered by epicures worth eating, and slices are cut from this in the direction indicated by the lines, from one to two. If necessary, the leg and the wing can be taken off by passing the knife from three to four, and by generally following the directions described for carving boiled fowl, number 1,000. Roast hare, 1,056. The grand carver of olden times, a functionary of no ordinary dignity, was pleased when he had a hare to manipulate, for his skill and grace had an opportunity of display. Diners a la Russe may possibly erewhile save modern gentlemen the necessity of learning the art, which was in old Lang Syne one of the necessary accomplishments of the youthful squire. But until side tables become universal, or till we see the office of Grand Carver once more instituted, it will be well for all to learn how to assist at the carving of this dish which, if not the most elegant in appearance, is a very general favourite. The hare, having its head to the left, as shown in the woodcut, should be first served by cutting slices from each side of the backbone, in direction of the lines from three to four. After these prime parts are disposed of, the leg should next be disengaged by cutting round the line indicated by the figures five to six. 
The shoulders will then be taken off by passing the knife round from seven to eight. The back of the hair should now be divided by cutting quite through its spine, as shown by the line one to two, taking care to feel with the point of the knife for a joint where the back may be readily penetrated. It is the usual plan not to serve any bone in helping hair, and thus the flesh should be sliced from the legs and placed along on the plate. In large establishments and where men cooks are kept, it is often the case that the backbone of the hair, especially in old animals, is taken out, and then the process of carving is, of course, considerably facilitated. A great point to be remembered in connection with carving hair is that plenty of gravy should accompany each helping. Otherwise, this dish, which is naturally dry, will lose half its flavour, and so become a failure. Stuffing is also served with it, and the ears, which should be nicely crisp, and the brains of the hair, are esteemed as delicacy by many connoisseurs. Partridges 1057 there are several ways of carving this most familiar game bird. The more usual and summary mode is to carry the knife sharply along the top of the breastbone of the bird, and cut it quite through, thus dividing it into precisely equal and similar parts, in the same manner as carving a pigeon, number 1003. Another plan is to cut it into three pieces, by severing a small wing and leg on either side from the body, by following the line one to two in the upper woodcut, thus making two helpings, when the breast will remain for a third plate. The most elegant manner is that of thrusting back the body from the legs, and then cutting through the breast in the direction shown by the line one to two. This plan will give four or more small helpings. A little bread sauce should be served to each guest. Grouse 1058 Grouse may be carved in the way first described in carving partridge. The backbone of the grouse is highly esteemed by many, and this part of many game birds is considered the finest flavoured. Pheasant 1059. Fixing the fork in the breast, let the carver cut slices from it in the direction of the lines from two to one. These are the prime pieces. If there be more guests to satisfy than these slices will serve, then let the legs and wings be disengaged in the same manner as described in carving boiled fowl, number 1000 the point where the wing joins, the neck bone, being carefully found. The merry thought will come off in the same way as that of a fowl. The most valued parts are the same as those which are most considered in a fowl. Snipe 1060 One of these small but delicious birds may be given, whole to a gentleman, but 
in helping a lady it will be better to cut them quite through the centre from one to two completely dividing them into equal and like portions and put only one half on the plate haunch of venison one thousand and sixty one here is a grand dish for a knight of the carving knife to exercise his skill upon and what will be pleasant for many to know there is but little difficulty in the performance an incision being made completely down to the bone in the direction of the line one to two the gravy will then be able easily to flow when slices not too thick should be cut along the haunch as indicated by the line four to three that end of the joint marked three having been turned towards the carver so that he may have a more complete command over the joint although some epicures affect to believe that some parts of the haunch are superior to others yet we doubt if there is any difference between the slices cut above and below the line it should be borne in mind to serve each guest with a portion of fat and the most expeditious carver will be the best carver as like mutton venison soon begins to chill when it loses much of its charm woodcock one thousand and sixty two this bird like a partridge may be carved by cutting it exactly into two like portions or made into three helpings as described in carving partridge number one thousand and fifty seven the backbone is considered the tit-bit of a woodcock and by many the thigh is also thought a great delicacy this bird is served in the manner advised by brilla savarin in connection with the pheasant fizz on toast which has received its drippings while roasting and a piece of this toast should invariably accompany each plate landrail one thousand and sixty three landrail being trussed like snipe with the exception of its being drawn may be carved in the same manner see number one thousand and sixty parmesan one thousand and sixty four parmesan being of much the same size and trussed in the same manner as the red bird may be carved in the manner described in partridge and grouse carvings number one thousand and fifty seven and one thousand and fifty eight quails one thousand and sixty five quails being trussed and served like woodcock may be similarly carved see number one thousand and sixty two plovers one thousand and sixty six plovers may be carved like quails or woodcock being trussed and served in the same way as those birds see number one thousand and fifty five teal one thousand and sixty seven teal being of the same character as widgeon and wild duck may be treated in carving in the same style widgeon one thousand and sixty eight 
Widgeon may be carved in the same way as described in regard to wild duck, at number 1055. End of section 52